Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of our podcast, Raya Affairs. My name is Marina, and I am the project development coordinator at Raya and co-host of the podcast since its very beginning. It's really great to be here today for another episode, as I am joined by my team member, Meryl, who will introduce herself shortly. And I'm here as well with a very special Raya guest who has been with us since Raya Affairs began. Hi, all. I'm Meryl, and I will be co-hosting this podcast today. I've just finished my master in European studies and I'm now an intern at the Dutch Ministry of Education. RIA is an international think tank led by young professionals that translate the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. RIA is where you come to learn about the stories and the worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of decision makers, and how politics impacts and changes your life. This is RIA Affairs, filling you in wherever you are. As our disclaimer, we would like to make it clear that expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they are not a direct reflection of Raya, as the methodology of our organization is based on unbiased writing and analysis. All right, so thank you, Meryl. And just to give you all a quick overview of our latest episode, Meryl and I recorded with Raya writer Roxanne to discuss the 2022 escalations of the border conflict between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And we really went into the material and resource interests between both political leaders, as well as the domestic pressures of both countries. And both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan were former Soviet countries. So this also has an in, had an impact, as we discovered, on the current status quo of the conflict and the disagreement on the border delineation. And similar to our previous episode, we will continue in our discussion of two nations, their respective leaders, and a border dispute. Namely, we will focus on the maritime border dispute between Israel and Lebanon in today's episode. Joining us is Raya writer and editor Ariel Kumbrick to get her insights on the historic agreement signed in October 2022 by Israel Jair Lapid and Lebanon's Mikel Anun. Marina, take it away. All right, so hi Ariel and welcome to Raya Affairs. It's great to have you on here and to our listeners, the reason why it's amazing to have Ariel is because when we were still thinking about launching Raya Affairs, we made our very first episode, a prototype with Ariel. She helped us think of the structure, she gave us a lot of feedback and she was really key to that initial testing phase of the podcast. So it was about time that you were finally on here now. Ariel, it would be great for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more as well, so could you tell us where you're from, what do you do, and what is your role at Raya? Perhaps even how you got to this role as an editor today. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction, Marina and Meadow. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here today at the Raya Ferris podcast, and I'm happy to share this moment with you all today. So I originally come from South Africa, and I studied my bachelor's degree in international relations and business administration at IE University. And currently, I'm working as a program manager at a social enterprise here in Madrid. So as a RIA member, I am currently a writer, an editor, as well as part of the membership team. And I've been part of the organization since the summer of 2021. I started here as an intern, worked my way up to a writer, and then finally became an editor last year. And it's really great to be here on the podcast today. 
Oh, thank you, Ariel. That's such a nice introduction and great to have you. So usually RIA members are passionate about international relations and our first question of today is related to this. So could you tell us which leader, either that of or life, who has impacted the world would you want to have a conversation with? Absolutely. So I would probably say Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. She was the president of Liberia from 2006 to 2018. And she was the first female president, not only of Liberia, but also she actually won a Nobel Peace Prize back in 2011 for incorporating women into peacekeeping opportunities. And I think it would be really interesting and, and such an opportunity to, to be able to have a conversation with her. Right. Thank you, Ariel. That's such a great choice. And let's just get into it. Uh, so before we begin, I think it's very useful to give an introduction, I guess, on the history of the countries that we will be discussing today. And particularly this decade-long border conflict between Israel and Lebanon. And we want to give our listeners some background. It's what we did last time. And I think it really helped set the stage on to understand really what region of the world we would be focusing on. So first, Israel and Lebanon both claim, right, this area of exclusive economic zone in the Mediterranean Sea, an EEZ or exclusive economic zone in the international relations world is just an area of the ocean extending about 230 miles or 200 nautical miles beyond a nation's territorial area. So this gives the country jurisdiction on living and non-living resources within the EEZ. Second, from what we researched before coming onto this podcast, both of these countries discovered in 2010 that they had massive deposits of natural gas. And these are known, as you will later talk about, and as you mentioned in your article, as the Kana and Karish gas fields. And since then, they've had both Israel and Lebanon lots of differences about where the borderline should be marked and have submitted different proposals to the UN. So Ariel, could you tell us more perhaps about this dispute that we will be discussing today? Has there even been any military confrontation perhaps? Great. I think that was a really good introduction. You more or less have the history covered. As you were mentioning, so in 2010, when deposits of natural gas were found off the coast of Israel, both of these countries jumped at the opportunity to claim the gas-rich waters, and they actually sent their original proposals delineating their economic zones in the Mediterranean Sea, so where the gas was discovered, to the United Nations. But since then, and due to politically assertive discussions, negotiations were ultimately delayed and they were actually resumed back in 2020, which is when the current proposals marking the current agreement were initially sent in and discussed. It's also important to note here, actually, the different sizes of these oil fields and whether they're working or not. So currently, the Karish oil field, which is just off the coast of Israel and is the larger of the two, it is the one that is working and is actually facing or undergoing exploration, while the Kana oil field is a prospective field that has not yet gone into production or not yet had gone into production at the time the agreement was signed. And therefore, a lot of the discussion during the negotiations were actually focused on the Karish oil field and the country's dominion over this field specifically. And when it comes to the military confrontations between these two nation states, there hasn't been something against each other. However, it is important to note a third non-state actor, which is Hezbollah. So it's the Iran-supportive political and military group based in 
Lebanon, there have been a few military skirmishes between Israel and this group right before the agreement was actually signed. Thank you, Ariel, and also Marina for giving this broad overview. I think that now we have all understood the nature of the years of conflict and within this time where they've had two years of negotiations since 2020. Could you tell us, Ariel, what the countries have agreed upon? And also, what is the maritime border deal signed by Lapita and Awun? Absolutely. So the maritime agreement, as mentioned, was signed on October 27th of 2022, which is a few days before then Lebanese President Michel Aoun and Prime Minister Yair Lapid were due to leave office and actually face elections. And what the agreement discussed was essentially the jurisdiction of each country in the Mediterranean Sea, particularly pertaining to the dominion of these two oil fields. And what was finally adopted was after these two years of discussions and two years of negotiations was that Line 23 would become the official border demarcation in the East Mediterranean Sea between Israel and Lebanon. And this line divides a variety of blocks that have been under discussion since 2010, which equate with each country's exclusive economic zones. But as it stands today, after the agreement was signed, Israel has gained full rights to explore the Karish gas field, while Lebanon maintains sovereignty over the prospective Tana oil field. But in, in terms of this agreement, there's also a bit of a caveat. Israel has the rights to be remunerated for potential deposits in the field under the agreement with French energy giant Total. So they not only get dominion over the Karish gas field, but also parts of the Kana oil field deposits. And as a follow-up to this, Ariel, could you tell us if there were any other main actors involved besides from Lapid and Aoun? And were they essential to the signing of this agreement? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the deal was brokered by a United States actor. So the U.S. State Department Energy Advisor Amos Hochstein actually became the figurehead or representative of this agreement, as he was the one to who was handling the negotiation when the deal came under fruition. And it's important to note here that he was loaded upon this agreement because Israel and Lebanon are still technically considered two enemy states. So the fact that he was able to get these two to the table to sign the agreement was a huge accomplishment of his part. But this is figuratively speaking, because it's important to note that Michel Aoun and Yair Lapid never actually met, but the representatives to the UN submitted the updated coordinates to establishing the border in the East Mediterranean Sea. So as such, also the UN played an important role in brokering this agreement. But at the end of the day, Aoun and Lapid are the ones who are celebrated for being able to pass one of the largest achievements in their country's recent histories. So Ariel, I just want to touch upon what you said about the agreement being U.S. brokered. And I think it would be also interesting to see U.S.'s perspective on what was agreed upon. I think you mentioned in your article that Biden described this agreement as a win-win situation for both countries. So could you elaborate on what he means by this strictly U.S.-based perspective? Absolutely. So Biden's remarks came just before the agreement was signed. And a few days afterwards, they also had a press conference where Biden was able to give these remarks. And what he's talking about is the current geopolitical situation in the region. So he argues that for Israel, this is a milestone achievement because it allows the country to protect its security interests in the region. While for Lebanon, it really represents an economic deal because it really allows the country to benefit from oil exploration 
while also decreasing the country's dependency on Iranian funds. So if we look at it purely from a U.S. perspective, these are clearly U.S. security interests and therefore what Biden came to mention when discussing the deal in public. Thank you, Ariel, for giving us this broad overview on the agreement and all the background knowledge. So it's very interesting to see how the U.S. interest might show through in this region. But yet we need to go back on track because today, of course, we're discussing about Israel and Lebanon and the leaders who signed this agreement. So let's start by focusing on Lapid, the former prime minister of Israel. And even though he's not the current prime minister because his premiership lasted from July 1st to October 31st in 2022, he was the prime minister when this agreement was signed. So could you tell us more about Lapid's leadership in general and his broad focus points during his time in government? Absolutely. So as a bit of a background, Yair Lapid comes from the centrist Yesh Atid party in Israel, who in 2021, in the elections, beat out incumbent Netanyahu with an eight-party coalition. And it's important to note that he was seen as the playmaker of this coalition. And he became prime minister of Israel, as you mentioned now, in July of last year, after his coalition member and leader of the Yamina party, Naftali Bennett assumed office for the first part of the tenure, which was as per the agreement when coming up with the eight-party coalition. But when Yair Lapid actually joined office and during his prime ministership, what he focused predominantly was on security concerns with neighboring countries, reducing inequality within Israel, ensuring the protection of democracy, appealing to Arab communities in the political sphere, which was also a very important stepping stone for him in wanting to win the elections in November 2022. But it is also really important to note that because Yair Lapid won the elections in 2021, given the wide array of political interests with the governing coalition, they never actually managed to form a government, meaning that the country plunged into five elections in the space of two years. And that is what happened in November 2022, which is when Netanyahu beat Lapid essentially, and when Lapid was no longer considered prime minister of the country. But overall, the focus points that he was trying to push for were predominantly focusing on security concerns within the country and really ensuring a protection of democracy within Israel. Right, Ariel. And do you think we can then connect Lapid's governance to this agreement that we're discussing today? Because you mentioned that Lapid was very concerned about the security interests of his own country with its neighbors, including Lebanon. So these tensions actually were still running high by the time that he was up for election again in November. So could you tell us more about what Lapid had to gain politically from signing the agreement right before the elections and what were his goals or his expectations that really drove him to sign this agreement? So Lapid stood to win both economically and politically by signing such a lucrative agreement that would essentially allow the continuation of offshore oil exploration um, and alleviate rising energy prices in Israel. But as you mentioned now, politically, he was driven to try to improve his electoral prospects ahead of the November elections. So as I mentioned, Lapid was facing a general election for the fifth time in two years, and he was unable during his prime ministership even to pass a lot of the laws that he intended due to the political stalemate he was facing in the coalition. And as such, to find an agreement that would be so economically beneficial for the country, 
and that would actually solve a decade-long maritime dispute between the neighboring country surely was an opportunity for him in going into the polls. So needless to say, with an Arab and also enemy state, as I mentioned, Lebanon is still considered an enemy state. This would even be more remarkable for Lapid's political career and his tenure as prime minister of Israel, meaning he would leave office on a more positive and enhanced note or potentially be sworn in as the following prime minister, which, as we know, was not the case. Thank you, Ariel. And it's interesting to hear all the political gains that Lapid could have had. And were there also any economic reasons behind signing the maritime agreement for Israel? Absolutely. So a few days before the agreement was actually signed, there is a lot of criticism focused on Israel and specifically on Lapid because energy giant, Greek energy company, basically came in and already started exploring in the Karish oil field. This was considered at that point in time not going with essentially illegal and not really going with what was set out in terms of the agreement. But this obviously points to the fact that Israel would very vastly benefit from this very lucrative agreement. This would essentially allow them to be able to tap into 1.75 billion cubic feet of gas and actually allow them the opportunity to start exporting this, meaning Israel would be able to gain another revenue stream from exports to Europe specifically. It's also important to note that before the agreement was signed, that Israel actually started exploring in the Karish oil field under Greek energy company Energian. This, however, caused a lot of criticism in the international community and specifically with Hezbollah, which started saying that this was an illegality and was not allowed before the agreement was signed. And this actually shows how economically viable the agreement would be for Israel and how beneficial it would be for the country in order to decrease the impact of rising energy prices, but also to start claiming a space in the exporting energy market as well. All right, so thank you, Ariel, for this analysis, including this very interesting point about Hezbollah. I now want to shift our discussion to Aoun, the president of Lebanon, and his reasons towards signing the agreement. Could you tell us, Ariel, a bit more about his presidency and the state of affairs that Lebanon finds itself in? So Michel Aoun actually assumed office in 2016. He stepped in and ended an almost three-year political vacuum where the country did not actually have a head of state. He comes predominantly from a military and political background. He even holds a disputed prime ministership between the years of 1988 and 1990. So this just gives a little bit more about his political background and where he's coming from. And in the last two years, as we know, he's been facing a lot of issues because Lebanon has been facing one of the world's worst economic and financial crises. The Lebanese pound has devalued by up to 95% in the past two years. Citizens face extremely strict restrictions on withdrawing money from Lebanese banks, meaning they're unable to access their savings. And this has obviously created widespread anger and disappointment among the citizens and has actually created claims of widespread corruption and claims of the state filling up state coffers. So naturally, as the head of state, Aoun comes on the receiving end of much of this criticism. Therefore, an agreement as such, which represented great economic hope for the country in order to reap benefits from oil exploration, was actually a blessing in disguise for Aoun, and it would allow him to essentially start addressing the country's dire economic situation. 
And as a follow-up on that, because you're mentioning that Lebanon was facing financial crisis, would it then be safe to say that Aoun's main interest in signing the agreement with Israel was out of just economic interests? Or would you more assess that he had any diplomatic interest with Israel at the time? That's a really good question. And it's really important to note here that there are very differing perspectives and opinions on what the agreement represented for Lebanon and for Israel. For Aoun and therefore for Lebanon, the agreement was seen more or less as technical because it allowed the country to solve a border dispute and it represented a huge economic opportunity for them to start actually reaping the benefits. But for Israel and for Lapid, it represented something completely different. In addition to being a technical agreement, they really wanted it to be more diplomatic, so to be seen as a diplomatic win between these two enemy states and more or less as a de facto recognition of Israel as a country. But it has been recorded that on many cases, Aoun has come up and said that there is no diplomatic intention behind the agreement, and it's merely technical for Lebanon. Therefore, it is quite interesting to note the different perspectives on the agreement itself. Thank you, Ariel, for showing us both perspectives. And given that the agreement had been signed just a few days before Aoun had stepped down, do you think he truly repped the benefits he personally desired? So it's interesting because Lebanon is a very technical political background. They have extremely strict restrictions on who can assume the presidency and who can assume the prime ministership. So there was a high chance that when Aoun would leave office, the head of state would be left vacant meaning there would be a, a political vacuum. And if there's a political vacuum, that would essentially give powers to a caretaker government to run the country, but they don't have a lot of power. They don't actually have the power to make any law with real political effect, never mind an international agreement and with their neighboring country, Israel. So in this case, it would have been very unlikely that the agreement would have been passed during the period after Aoun would have left office. So what Aoun did is he pushed through the agreement. So while he did not reap any tangible benefits because he left office, of, I think it was three or four days after the agreement was signed, he did leave office on a positive note. He was really looking to leave his presidency, being seen as a leader who would work pragmatically towards alleviating the country's economic crisis, be seen as a leader who really cared about Lebanon and its people and, and tried to get as far away as possible from claims of corruption. So in this way, the agreement really represented an opportunity for him to do so, to kind of clean his slate and leave his six-year tenure on a more positive note and be seen as a leader to push past historic milestone with Israel, an enemy state to Lebanon, essentially. Thank you, Ariel. Now that I think we've really understood both leaders as well as the interests and the implications behind this agreement, I do want to go back to something you said earlier. Of course, we noticed that both leaders vary in their interpretation of what this agreement signifies, what it symbolizes other than this long-awaited de-escalation and peace in this maritime border dispute between Israel and Lebanon. You have mentioned that Lapid sees this agreement through a political lens, whereas Aoun sees it as a technical agreement between the two states. Could you tell us more about this stance that they have and if they've shown this to each other in public? So as you mentioned, and as I highlighted earlier, 
These two neighboring countries face quite a delicate history of antagonism. And this is since the 1980s when there was the Lebanese-Israeli war or invasion, dependent on who you're asking, which means that from that point up until now, there is no recognition on Lebanon's part of Israel. And that means essentially that there are no diplomatic exchanges between these countries, no embassies, no discussion between government officials. Their regard is completely separate with no interaction. And because this is the case, what happened with the agreement and why the UN was such an important vehicle to carry through the agreement was that through the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is a convention that's been created within the UN body that helps to solve disputes such as this one and line out exclusive economic zones, it became a super important part of the agreement because if they would not have gone through the UN, it would have had other diplomatic and political impacts or effect. But since they went through the UN and through UNCLOS specifically as a vehicle, the technical relationship between these two countries or the technical implication of the agreement should be more focused on than a diplomatic one. So essentially in saying this, while I mentioned previously that Lapid and Aon view the agreement very differently, because of that and because they are from vastly different camps, the UN actually allowed them to come through and be able to pass the agreement through the body that focuses on solving these disputes. So in public, they did not sign the agreement in the same room. They signed it separately in separate signing ceremonies, and they never officially met or had a discussion about this in person. Everything was done through their representatives through the UN, and ultimately they just reaped the benefits of being the leaders of their countries without going into formal diplomatic discussions. And so just based on this analysis, Lapid, you know, has said that this signature of the agreement with a country that is technically still Israel's enemy has been a sign of recognition of the state of Israel. Is this statement so mistaken from Lapid's perspective? Could this be considered Lebanese recognition of Israel and vice versa? This is where perception and interest comes in. So for Lapid, obviously the recognition of Israel by an Arab state would be a huge achievement, meaning that when the agreement was discussed in Israel, it's always attached to this question. So it's always attached to the question of whether it is a de facto recognition. So if you see the media that was disseminating news during this part in time in Israel, it was very much focused on that. But on the other hand, as we have clearly mentioned for Aoun and for Lebanon, on many occasions, they have completely disregarded this idea. And he has previously mentioned that the agreement should not be misconstrued as establishing official relations with its neighboring country. So for Aoun and the Lebanese media, and therefore Lebanon, the agreement was nothing more than technical and just allowing the country to reap its economic benefits at the end of the day. All right. And so just to end kind of this line of questioning, Given that the two leaders view it, this agreement so differently, could this hinder the actual effects of the agreement? What do you see in your analysis will be the effects that this agreement will produce? So beyond what the agreement represents to each of these leaders and beyond their perception, the agreement actually does have an implication because it establishes the official maritime border between these two countries in the East Mediterranean Sea. So it does carry political and legal weight and implications short of recognition. So as I mentioned before, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea 
is where they were predominantly doing the negotiations and, and what will in effect be holding these two actors accountable, meaning any breach or dispute will have to continue being discussed and they'd be held accountable for that under the auspice of this convention. But politically and in terms of a warming of relations between these two countries, it is very likely that not much will change and that there won't be an actual warming up of relations, especially as new leaders are stepping in and taking the podium and as these two leaders have actually uh, left office. Thank you, Ariel. And it's always interesting to see how an agreement can be viewed from these multiple perspectives and have so many actors involved. So before we move on to our last question, uh, it has been some time since October 2022 and both countries underwent elections. So I'm especially interested in how Benjamin Netanyahu, Lapid's successor and Israel's current prime minister, views this agreement given that he and his new coalition are further to the right. So could you maybe delve into the fate of the agreement with Netanyahu in power? Absolutely. So a few weeks before the elections in November, Netanyahu actually asserted that he would neutralize the agreement if he assumed office. And now we know that he is in office, but he actually hasn't said anything of the sort yet. In addition to this, the US administration, so the ones who were helping Amos Hoxin push through the negotiations, as they were playing such a major role in the agreement, and they would understand that this was a possibility, they assured that the negotiations or the effect of the agreement would not be implicated if another leader were to take office. And some Lebanese officials agree, but there is the case that there is still some fear around it that the agreement would be reversed. But in this case, even if it's not reversed, we know that with Netanyahu assuming office, that could mark an increase in tensions between these two neighboring countries. Uh, meaning that an agreement like this one won't do much to quell any antagonism going forward that goes beyond the scope of what the agreement actually set out to be. So there might still be an increase in tension, regardless if the agreement still stays and is still respected by both countries at the end of the day. Thank you so much, Ariel. And so it's definitely clear from the whole discussion that we've had that your process of research and analysis has gone beyond the leader's interests and also assessed wider implications of disagreement. So in this line of thought, what do you as a Raya writer believe are the three top takeaways our listeners should have in the process of research and analysis? So largely part of the methodology that we use at Raya uh, is to really understand the individual behind an administration or behind a country or behind a government. And I think that's what makes it really interesting when analyzing international affairs is to understand what drives these leaders domestically, what drives them psychologically, what are their pressure points, what are the aspirations, etc. As this really allows you to understand maybe to a different scope or a different level, how international relations play out on the global stage. And it's also a way to make international relations more interesting, in my opinion. Secondly, I think I would say that it's important to note that what we're writing about and discussions and topics that we try to focus on in our analysis actually impacts thousands, if not millions of people around the world or in one location. And it can be really easy to write from it from a distance perspective because we're not living that reality. But at the end of the day, there are so many people that are living that reality. And it's important to have this nuanced aspect within your writing. And finally, 
I think I urge people who are interested in analysis to read international news outlets. So to basically have a variety of sources from where you're coming, not only focus on the ones that you know or that you've used for many years, but actually expand a little bit. And this is how we can check our biases and how we can create a piece of writing that's a little bit more broad in analysis and perspectives that we take into consideration. As all of us struggle with biases, and it's just important to check them and know when they come up in our writing and how we can avoid them as much as possible. But considering these three, I think hopefully people who are listening to this would be able to learn something from analysis too. Thank you, Ariel, for your top three takeaways. We will now move on to our podcast segment, Connecting the Dots. So here we try to connect the leader or leaders at hand with a wider international relations topic. And this ranges from development to human rights to foreign policy, security, and other just relevant topics. The goal of this part is just really to show how interconnected global politics is, regardless of the discussion that we're having on the episode. So as we observed, Ariel, in this discussion with you, that Lapid, for example, framed signing this agreement into a chance of helping European gas supply. So given the interconnectedness and deep reliance Europe had with natural gas coming in from Russia before the war in Ukraine broke out, it's now and has been heavily seeking new partners and new resources. So it's interesting to note that, as you said already, the US has interest in signing this agreement but also Europe's relevance as a part of LAPI's interest is also there. So as you mentioned in the article, Israel had an already signed agreement for a gas pipeline with Cyprus, Greece, and Italy. This pipeline could be even more fruitful given there are no border conflicts with Lebanon. Therefore, to what extent will LAPI's expectations at the time come to life? So can we hence connect the dots between this agreement and any elevation in the European energy crisis. So one of the major arguments for initiating gas exploration in the Karish oil field before the agreement was actually signed was in order to export gas to Europe to alleviate its energy crisis during this geopolitical crisis. And obviously this is of joint interest for Israel and Europe, hence the engagement of Greek energy company Energian in its exploration activities in late 2022. So as I mentioned, the oil field holds 1.5 trillion cubic feet of unexplored gas. So while this is smaller than other energy fields or oil fields in Israel, like the Leviathan, it still holds a lot of potential in order to alleviate Israel's rising energy prices. However, it is also important to note that this is also an opportunity for Israel to start exporting gas. Now, Israel became an energy exporting country in 2017 initially exporting to Egypt and to Jordan, which also meant that during the Russian invasion in Ukraine and the current war, it has been largely shielded by the energy crisis. So as such, they actually started to export gas in February of this year. So February 2023, they started to export their first shipment of gas to Europe, meaning that Israel can not only benefit from the exports, but they looked upon very positively in the international community because this is what they told the international community that they would set out to do if the agreement were achieved. So all in all, it is looking really positively for Israel and for Europe, who has received its first shipment 
in the agreement and that will be receiving further shipments from Enojean in the following few months. So there we have it, a prime example of how interconnected our topic is with today's world scenario. To finish this episode, it has been a pleasure to host Ariel and have her analyze two important leaders and their decision-making process in signing a historical maritime border agreement between Israel and Lebanon last year. We began with a discussion of the important facts of what this agreement has settled and the rights afforded to each country over deposits of natural gas in their respective exclusive economic zones. And then Ariel was able to answer all our questions with extreme detail and perspective when it came to Lapid and Aoun's domestic motivations for signing this agreement, as well as the distinct interpretations that each leader has over what this agreement stands for. Ariel provided us with, I believe, the most interesting reflection. Despite the agreement perhaps not changing the diplomatic and political relations between the two countries, it's extremely valid because it carries technical and legal weight based on the importance given to UNCLOS and the role of the UN in this process. Lastly, Ariel gave us insight into other important actors and how they relate to the topic at hand. This included the US, Hezbollah, and now Israel's Netanyahu. Again, this episode has provided us with knowledge of yet another region of the world, and it is all thanks to Ariel's research and analysis. Thank you, Marina, for giving this broad summary of our episode today. And thank you, Ariel, for being on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you to both of you so much, Marina and Meryl. It's been such an honor to be on the podcast and be here again, as you mentioned, and see how much Raya Ferris has grown in the past few months. So I feel very honored to have been a guest with you today. So thank you again to our number one fan. And for those of you who have enjoyed our discussion and who want to read Ariel's article for yourself, click the link in the episode description or find her research and analysis on riagroup.org. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram, raya.now, and you'll see Ariel on there too. It was a pleasure hosting this discussion today. Goodbye, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Have a great day in your sphere of influence.